0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Hot Shot Wake Up. This is your weekly wildfire update. Plenty of stuff going on in the wildfire world. Nationally, when it comes to the United States, the East Coast has seen a tremendous amount of activity. Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Maine had wildfires. New Jersey had some very large wildfires. Pennsylvania had some very large wildfires. North Carolina's kind of wrapping up their big ones. Vermont and Kentucky had some fires. Florida, some small little fires. Their larger ones are getting wrapped up. And then if we move to the southern area, Oklahoma has been very, very busy. If you look at Nebraska, they've had a tremendous amount of wildfires. Underreported. Haven't heard much about them, but we'll talk about it. Multiple fires that nearly went 10,000 acres in Nebraska. They filed a state of emergency, or I should say the governor did, Kansas filed an emergency declaration. Wisconsin filed a state of emergency for their wildfires. They had some large wildfires going on there, and we'll cover the details with that. And then if you push down to Region 3, the Southwest, Arizona, New Mexico, not a tremendous amount of activity, but they're still getting IAs or initial attack fires. These things are going tens to hundreds of acres. Things are still kind of drying out, and the season is starting to get going there. And if you look at the Rocky Mountain area, Colorado has also been busy. A couple hotshot crews have been mobbed to that region. And it's sounding like a lot of these fires so far in this spring season. It's not surprising, but it should be noted that a lot of these fires have been human-caused. The large fire in Wisconsin out of Fort McCoy... They're still investigating what the cause of that was, but it is pretty telling that there was a prescribed burn planned the same day that this thing took off. Officially, there's no reports that that's exactly what it was, and we'll get a full report on that. But they are reporting, hey, we did have a prescribed fire happening that day. Also, we had a large wildfire in the same area that the prescribed fire took place. Kind of the tricky thing with that is there's the military involved and... The state of Wisconsin, so you have the DNR out of Wisconsin working with the military and there's kind of a joint dual command system set up on that fire and we're getting some staggered information. It's not bad information. It is good information, but like the DNR will say it's 77% contained, but then the military will come out and say, hey, it's actually 100% contained and they're not being contentious. It's just it seems like the information flow is kind of staggered with both of those agencies. We'll get into a full operational update, what everything's costing here just in a second. But later in the show, there was a GAO report that came out specifically on wildfire ordering and contracts. And the GAO is the Government Accountability Office. And basically, they run audits on agencies to see if they're conducting business as they should. It's a very extensive report. It's 72 pages long, but I did find some areas in there that we're going to cover and talk about. One of the main ones being how they're running the food catering services for wildfire and all the details there. They changed a couple things. It used to be closest caterer goes, kind of like how closest resource goes when there's a wildfire. But it was recently changed to where the priorities of who gets to go first is Cheapest, So the lowest cost caterer now is the first determining factor on who's going to your fire. Of course, you run into all sorts of issues with this because it then incentivizes the caterers to become the cheapest, which then means they are cutting costs to get costs down to where they can bid a lower contract to be the cheapest one available. And by just going out by the cheapest option first, the second priority is then... Proximity to the fire, but the first thing they now look at is cost. So it incentivizes these caterers to keep lowering their prices, lowering how much money they're putting into their operations when it comes to what's going out the door, as in food service, to try to be the first one to be dispatched to a fire. They did a whole section on that in this report. And then they went over something that I I can say I don't know as much about that as I can talk about the whole catering situation and the way that has been laid out but they audited the ordering process as well, both with the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service. And they basically said, it looks like you're just not following policy. There's policies in place that say, hey, per order should be $25,000, nothing over that. But then they audited six large orders, I guess, in this study. And four out of those six had orders, one-time orders of 900000 to $1.2 So way over what's allowed for the max order for these certain processes that you have to go through to procure things for your wildfire and even in the replacement side of things. And we'll briefly touch on that as well. Also in the report, they said, hey, you guys aren't tracking stuff well enough. You... Need to be, You need to be better at tracking where all the money's going because even as we're auditing you, we're having trouble figuring out where all the money's going. So we'd appreciate it if you would take the lessons learned from this report and this audit that we conducted and keep better track of how you're spending money because we'd, we'd appreciate that as the government accountability office uh, trying to figure out where all this money's going. So we'll jump into that in the second part of the show. We're going to have a conversation about the cutting costs of the caterers and what that incentivizes as well. There's kind of a lot to cover there. But first, let's go over the operational update. Right now, nationally, we're at a preparedness level one. Maybe that will change soon. Maybe not. Like I said, there's multiple regions that are currently at a PL2, and the East Coast has been fairly busy. That being said, Florida has kind of tapered a little bit, as has Texas, but then you have the... Southwest region picking up a little bit as well. So we'll see how that all plays out. Now over the last week, which is how they're categorizing this all before we get into a busier part of the season, over the last week there was 1,673 new fires in the nation. And they're calling that moderate wildfire starts. That's for a week in April. That's pretty significant. They said 30 of those were large fires and 20 of those large fires remain uncontained. The southern area, which is at a preparedness level two, they had multiple new fires. Oklahoma had a tremendous amount of fires. Laundry list of fires coming out of Oklahoma. They had the Wolf Creek fire. It was 3,400 acres. Most of these fires didn't cost all that much. We're looking at anywhere between thirty dollars and $70,000. And when we start going down the list, you'll see that these numbers increase greatly, even for smaller fires around the nation. Most of the fires in Oklahoma, though, at least the recent starts, most of them are almost all the way contained or getting to that point. And surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, if you're from the area, Kentucky also had a kind of a spattering of fires. I say surprisingly because you don't see much on it when it comes to reporting on it and things that make the national news. But they had multiple new starts, over 100 acres, a couple 200-plus acre fires in Kentucky. Florida had that Cypress Camp Trail fire. That was down in the National Preserve. That fire went 9,749 acres and had a total cost of $1.3 million to date. That thing's basically wrapped up. Parts of Florida got a significant amount of moisture the other day, but there are parts of Florida that did not see any of that precipitation statewide. In North Carolina, like I said, they're kind of wrapping up the bigger fires. There was this last resort fire that we'd been talking about for at least, the, at least the last week, maybe two weeks now, started from a debris pile that escaped. That fire went 5,280 acres. They recently have that thing kind of shored up. They had some issues with water sources and how they're going to put this thing out and we can't put salt water in this peat bog. And the soils are precious, so they had to find different water sources to mop up, I guess. But that was one of the larger fires on the East Coast early this month and currently the most expensive fire if i remember correctly the most expensive fire currently in the united states at 2.2 million dollars to date on that wildfire the southwest area is also at a preparedness level two again not a tremendous amount of large fires or or extreme activity but the initial attacks are increasing day by day they had 29 new fires the Tinaja fire was at 328 acres and 85% contained. It sucked up a bunch of resources, a bunch of fixed wings, LATs, helicopters showed up, kind of hammered that down until Colorado took all of their resources and said, hey, we got more priorities up north here. Can you send us all of our fixed wing aircraft? And they kind of got diverted after a day or two working on this fire down in Arizona. That fire currently has come in at a total cost of $600,000. There was another new start in southern Arizona today. I don't think it went very big, but it wasn't kind of a wilderness area, a campground area. So I would assume human caused because it was right in the campground or right nearby. That was an initial attack earlier today. I believe it's called the Lakeview fire and resources are still working that one down in southern Arizona. The Rocky Mountain area is at a PL one. They had 16 new fires. As we said, Nebraska was kind of crazy busy. The governor filed for that emergency declaration. There's the McCann Fire. It's ran by the Nebraska Forest Service. It's southwest of Valentine, Nebraska. Seven thousand and forty acres on this fire, with a cost of two hundred thousand dollars. They also had the Rock Creek fire at 2600 acres and the Del Porto fire at 6500 acres. So Nebraska kind of had some large rompers pushing through the grassland and getting to you know fairly sizable fires. Multiple fires pushing that 7 to 10,000 acre size. Kansas had a bunch of fires as well. There was a story that came out of a bunch of farmers and even local businesses that were running private tenders and tractor plows through the fields to try to stop these things, which I always love those stories. There's multiple fires in Montana and Idaho that I was on where you show up and a rancher has his own bulldozer or a tractor plow or a tiller and they're trying to stop this thing on their own. There's times where we would be chunking line walking by and there'd be a local. And you'd ask him what he's doing. He's like, well, I'm burning off my property. And we, you know, we chuck him a drip torch and say, hey, just make sure you get this back to someone. We won't tell anybody you're doing good work. This This will make your life a lot easier if you're trying to burn off your dozer line that you created on your property. So I like seeing those stories. I like hearing those stories because I'm a, I understand that there's times where the public can actually get in the way of an operation, but there's also private citizens who are operators Who snap into action and try to do things to help instead of more of the public that gets in the way are the gawkers, the people with the drones looking, the people who are trying to snap the photos and the videos, and the people who are panicking. Like just in Colorado, you had someone enter an evacuation zone and they had a medical incident and it took away from the fire response. I was talking to my brother tonight at dinner. He showed up to a fire of just a local who had stayed too long, had a heart attack. I was on a fire in Colorado. We drove by. Someone called my soup truck and said, hey, there's a fire back there, Tim. We flipped around and it was some guys whose tire exploded in the rim, started a fire. And we quickly got around it. But when I went back to check on the guy, he was sitting in the ditch and he looked up to me and he's just like, I think I'm having a heart attack. And he was bright red and he did. He looked like he was having a heart attack. And that you have to help these people, but it does take away from your operational response when you're now dealing with that incident within an incident. Moving on to the eastern area, they're at a PL1. I'm surprised that that hasn't bumped up. I wouldn't be surprised if it does bump up here soon. They've been very busy. 38 new fires, but just in the last day or two, there's been more than that. The large one in New Jersey was the Jimmy's Waterhole Fire. And this was the fire that ripped through the Pine Barrens, 3,859 acres, crazy fire behavior. These sort of things happen this time of year in that part of New Jersey. But I still think it's pretty shocking to folks to hear New Jersey and watch crown runs of wildfire pushing 4,000 acres in a day. But this is large timbered acreage up in this part of the country. They're now calling that 100% contained. I was surprised at how fast they called it 100% contained, but they did fire off some swamps and some roads and were able to box this thing in and quickly call it contained. Again, surprisingly, they're saying it only costs $30,000 for that fire. Maybe that cost will go, go up as the days go by and they start getting all the finance in, but as of right now, the claim is thirty grand for that nearly 4,000-acre fire in New Jersey. That same fire in California would already be at like 4 million, 4 or 5 million after just these first couple days for a fire that size and timber in a somewhat residential area. Pennsylvania has had a bunch of large fires as well. The most notable is the Crystal Lake Fire, 2,513 acres as of today. It was still running today. And they're saying it's at 10% contained. There's an article out of Lehigh Valley Live That kind of gave a discussion of this. Again, this is a large fire for Pennsylvania. They're saying it's a half mile southeast of Mountaintop in Luzerne County. Is that how you pronounce it? Luzerne County, Pennsylvania. They said containment was estimated at around 10% early Friday afternoon. 150 homes were threatened. Currently, no known structures have been lost. They're saying 102 personnel are assigned to the fire currently, two fixed-wing air tankers, and a heavy helicopter is also involved in that operation. That Crystal Lake fire in Pennsylvania is still under investigation. It burned on both private land, state forest land, and Pennsylvania state game, game lands. They had it pretty well contained, but then I had been posting about this on the social media It picked back up the next morning, winds came, and ultimately it spotted across the lines that they had. They had constructed fire line around it, spotted over their line the next morning, and just took off. If you look at Wisconsin, they have had some fires as well. I believe I said at the top of the show the governor in Wisconsin filed for a state of emergency. That would be Governor Tony Evers saying that the state of emergency would cover 41 counties and the whole thing was due to wildfire danger. This is mostly for central and southern Wisconsin. Many parts of northern Wisconsin still have some snow cover on them. But in the southern half of the state, they had red flag warnings, high winds, and low humidity. The state of emergency allowed for the availability for National Guard resources to help out in any sort of fight. And speaking of which, the largest wildfire there, which is off of the Fort McCoy base there, which is being called the Arcadia Fire, again, like I said, the National Guard is saying 100% contained, the Wisconsin DNR is saying 77% contained, and this is that fire that started on Fort McCoy. They did have a prescribed fire the same day, but they have not concluded that this Arcadia Fire was because of the prescribed burn. It says that it has burned 3,168 acres as of Friday. It started on Wednesday, and only 109 acres of the 3,168 acres were outside the U.S. Army installation's boundaries. A spokesperson said the terrain at Fort McCoy is extremely steep and rough terrain, so there's been some challenges related to getting some of our suppression equipment in the area. We've had to use a lot of air assets, including Black Hawk helicopters from the Wisconsin National Guard, which have been a wonderful asset to slow the intensity of that fire. But overall, a pretty busy week. Kansas, again, issued that emergency declaration. Nebraska did. Wisconsin did. And we're seeing these larger fires happening in places like Pennsylvania. Rhode Island had a pretty large fire today, as did Massachusetts. Massachusetts had a fire. I don't think they had an official acreage out by the time that I was um, sitting down and recording this, but I posted some video on the social media and it looks like it's kind of getting after it. It was outside of Sterling, Massachusetts, if I remember, and the fire in Rhode Island was outside of Exeter, Rhode Island. So overall, East Coast has been very busy. Southwest is picking up. Prescribed burning is happening in other parts of the country, California, Region 1 in Idaho, Montana, and even in places in Region 6. All around the nation, hotshot crews are coming on or just about to start. Once May hits, basically everyone's going to be on and we'll see where the wildfire season goes at that point in time. That does it for the operational update. I'm going to take this time to thank the paid Substack subscribers that we have. If you're a longtime listener and reader, you know that I'm sponsorship-free, I'm ad-free at this point in time, and everything that I do is supported through those Substack subscriptions, so thank you to everyone that does that. To the people who are the free subscribers, thank you as well. I know that you like and share the articles and the podcast, and I appreciate that spreading the word. If you want to participate in supporting what I do, whether it's wildland firefighter donations, donations to their families, the giveaways that I do, there's another one coming up soon. I'm going to do a pack giveaway with a bunch of goodies inside of it. So that should be a good one. All the paid subscribers are automatically entered into all those giveaways. We do a chainsaw giveaway, multiple boot giveaways. And I wouldn't be able to even put out the amount of news, podcasts, and content that I do if it wasn't for those subscribers. So thank you very, very much. It You guys are my sponsors. You are my ads. So, again, I couldn't do it without you. If you want to participate in that, go to the thehotshotwakeup.substack.com. There's a link in the description below if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Click on that subscribe button. It's just $6. And that goes towards everything that I do and keeps this whole operation running. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills. The Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. I have traveled. traveled, traveled. So as we are talking about at the top of the show, the Government Accountability Office put out this large report, 70-plus pages long, where they looked at ordering within the wildfire realm, what's wrong with it, what can be improved, the contracting system involved in it. And basically, the highlights of this study, it asks, why did we do this study? And the GAO says, the federal government obligates hundreds of millions of dollars annually to respond to wildfires. Use of contracts can play a key role in the immediate aftermath of disaster and community recovery the Government Accountability Office analyzed contracting data from FEMA, the Bureau of Land Management, and the Forest Service, agencies that are responsible for key wildfire response and recovery responsibilities. From the thousands of contract actions, the Government Accountability Office selected a non-generalized sample of 14 contracts and 18 associated orders for review from these agencies based on factors such as total obligations, from these contracts the government accountability office also reviewed agency documentation and interviewed agency officials and in short it says what did we find and recommend and it says the government accountability office is making six recommendations including that the bureau of land management and forest service take steps to improve ordering official policies and their implementation and the Forest Service developed mechanisms to archive and track lessons learned. All agencies concurred with our recommendations. Now, I'm going to briefly cover the section where they talk about ordering and ordering amounts, but I think the conversation that is most applicable to our listeners is what's going on with the catering units and how they do all of that. Now, I've long said there's tremendous amounts of government waste We put out an article in a podcast the other week talking about how the the EPA has misplaced, in their words, tens of billions of dollars in the last two years, and they don't know where it's went. The, The Pentagon and the Department of Defense has never passed an audit, and multiple years now they're saying that upwards of $2 trillion has gone missing that they can't account for. And it's starting to look like that the wildfire agencies are not too far behind. Obviously, it's not trillions of dollars that have gone missing or can't account for, but the Government Accountability Office is saying, hey, you need to do better at tracking this stuff. And also, when we offer you recommendations and people use your lessons learned system, you don't have anything in place to like archive that stuff. So how are you learning from this stuff if you don't have a place to for all these things to go? But real quick, it says, to mobilize goods and services quickly, The three selected agencies that the Government Accountability Office studied use multiple approaches. For example, they can use indefinite delivery contracts and assigned ordering officials who can be authorized to place certain orders on behalf of the government. However, the Government Accountability Office found that for the orders reviewed... The Bureau of Land Management and Forest Service's use of ordering officials did not always align with their respective agency policies. For example, four of the six BLM orders that the Government Accountability Office reviewed exceeded the $25,000 ordering limit specified in their policy. The cumulative values of these orders ranged between $900,000 and $2.1 million dollars. The BLM has since taken steps that will address the issues that we have identified for these orders, but has not yet updated all of its relative and related policies. And then they go on to talk about how the Forest Service isn't tracking as good as they should, but basically policy says, hey, you can not exceed $25,000 in an order limit. And of the orders that they reviewed, then they reviewed six of them. Four of the six exceeded the 25000 with an average amount being 900000 to $2.1 million. So according to agency policy, they went over almost 1,000% what the ordering limit is for some of these orders and basically four out of six, you're looking at almost 70% of the orders that were reviewed were anywhere between 800 and 1,000% larger than what the policy allowed them to be. Now, maybe there was reasons for this. Maybe there were ordering officials who thought, hey, we're going to get a better deal if we do it this way, so on and so forth. But ultimately, when the Government Accountability Office looked at it, they were like, this seems to stand out a little bit, and we should take a look at that. Now let's move on and talk about the food service contracts that are handed out for wildland fire. Now, this gets pretty in depth and talks about old policies, new policies, but I find it very revealing that the number one criteria that used to be used for food service contracts was closest resource goes. So, if you were a caterer in one of the 30 locations that are contracted for caterers to basically station out of in case of wildfire, The original criteria was the closest caterer goes to the incident that is ordering the caterer very recently they changed it to cheapest caterer goes with the second criteria being how close are they to the incident now if you have ever run a business or you can just critically think about what would happen like with this new set of rules is caterers now will want to get their costs down to become the cheapest resource So they are sent first and that ends up being in reduced quality of food, maybe even amount of food provided, even though that there's, they're contractually obligated to provide a certain amount of calories and nutritional value per meal. The quality of all of that may go down because the government is basically saying the cheaper you are, the more we're going to order you. So let's go through this because it's kind of crazy once you kind of get into the meat of it all. It says in 2020, the Forest Service awarded indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity, small business contracts to 17 contractors across 30 dispatch points to provide mobile food meal services. So basically 17 entities were granted contracts to fill 30 dispatch points across the nation. The national mobile food services contracts are used any time certain criteria are met when mobile food services are needed for federal wildland firefighter incidents. Basically, hey, a team or a larger fire is happening. The IC calls dispatch and says, hey, I need food services. And bing, bang, boom, you get someone coming your way. These contracts include equipment, labor, supplies and transportation necessary to provide meals at field locations during wildland fire incidents. The contracts include fixed price line items for meal services. The contracts also include a base period of performance plus four additional one-year optional periods. It continues saying the Forest Service employed a generally similar approach for ordering mobile food services under the current 2020 Contracts and prior 2015 iterations of those contracts. Under both sets of contracts, ordering officials from the National Interagency Coordination Center, also known as NIC, determined that mobile food services contracts are available and place an order to one of those units. Additionally, under both sets of contracts, the government established mandatory availability periods. So basically... Here's your season, you're on call, basically, these are when you need to be available. These periods of time are in which the mobile food units and contractors personnel or their employees must be physically located at their dispatch point and available for dispatch should a requirement arise. If you look at these dispatch points, they're spattered around the West. It's Missoula Butte Billings in Montana, two places in Wyoming, Cody and Lander, Colorado, there's one in Grand Junction, New Mexico, Albuquerque and Farmington, Flagstaff, Tucson, in Arizona, Salt Lake City, Kanab in Utah, multiple places in California, Washington, Oregon, and two places in Nevada, Reno and Elko. So these are predetermined areas where basically these food units need to be staged. It says the government guarantees a minimum payment to each mobile food unit that remains available during the contractually mandated period even if the unit is not dispatched in response to a single incident. So the contracts say, if we never call you to provide food, we have a minimum amount that we are just going to pay out to you anyway. And I guess I don't see a problem with that part of it, because if you want to hold a, an entity or you want to hold a business for use, you you have to. That's with any service, whether you're getting some contracting done or someone's coming to look and 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 do some plumbing but just just having someone assess it is going to cost you money even without the service being fulfilled. This is where it gets very very interesting. It says further, when ordering under both the current and prior iterations of the contracts, ordering officials determine a unit's distance from an incident using a mobile food unit's designated dispatch point to determine which contractors are closest to respond during a contractually defined period during the year. While there were many similarities between the previous and current contracts, the Forest Service also introduced a change to its evaluation for issuing orders under the 2020 contract. Under the old contract that expired in 2019, the agency ordered services based solely on the contractor's proximity to the wildfire incident. So closest one goes to the incident and it said that's without evaluating any other factors so the old contracts were who's the closest caterer who can we get there quickest that's who we're going to send in the new contracts that came out in 2020 which is it's when all the covid stuff came out but maybe it's a coincidence but that's when it happened the forest service changed its evaluation for issuing orders to introduce a lowest price option formula based on the closest three sources to the incident specifically for orders under the new 2020 contracts the forest service considers lowest evaluated price in addition to distance from an incident as factors for awarding these orders to incidents so let's kind of break this down before 2020 if you were a contracted caterer in order to get sent to an incident You basically just had to be the closest. In some of those dispatch areas that I talked about that are across the Western United States, if there was a fire in Kanab, Utah, and you were stationed out of Kanab, you would be the first one to go. Now they weigh, well, the caterer in Salt Lake City or the caterer in Reno is cheaper than the caterer in Kanab, and that wins out. And they say, hey, we're going to send the cheapest one to your location. Ultimately, the way I see it is that drives an incentive to cut costs and find a way to become the cheapest. Because you're going to get more work if you're cheaper. The problem I see there is quality of food goes down, quality of people maybe even goes down, the quality of the help, because if you pay people less, you're probably getting less quality workers i would assume that's the case maybe i'm wrong maybe better people work for less but i just i just don't think that's the case so basically the government has incentivized caterers to get worse and i'm i'm generalizing that statement but it seems to be the case and then it gets into why did they do that and they just say hey we wanted to save some money you know that our whole point of doing this was trying to save money It continues saying, as a result, under this new approach, a mobile food unit further from an incident may be awarded the order depending on the combined price and difference due to its lower evaluated price when compared with other units that are physically closer to the incident. Okay, this is from the Government Accountability Office's report on all of this. They're saying, hey, multiple times, food units that are further away from the incident but will cost us less, we will take them over someone who is right next door. That leads delays. I can't tell you how many times you show up to a fire, they're trying to get something set up, and they're saying, hey, the food unit's two days out, and, you know, it's MREs until then. And, you know, I've eaten plenty of MREs, MREs in my day. I've gone full 14-day tours eating nothing but MREs. It's absolutely horrible. And I'm not trying to be some high maintenance firefighter here, but what I'm saying is billions of dollars are going into the wildfire budget and they decided to go this route to save eight hundred thousand dollars, drop in the bucket, peanuts and they're saying, hey what we're saving money but it's like for what what what's the cost of saving that money? lower quality food, lower quality help, It says the Forest Service tracked the results of this new ordering approach and determined that this new approach resulted in cost savings to the government. And specifically, the Forest Service analysis shows that the approach saved the government approximately $970,000 in 2020 and approximately $800,000 in 2021. So if you look at the cost savings compared to the overall wildland fire budget, which is billions, we'll just take $2 billion, which I know is low, it's around $2.5 billion, but just for simple round numbers and math, the $800,000 that they saved to send the cheapest caterer to an incident that's further away than the caterer that costs a little bit more, the savings of $800,000 is point zero 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 four percent of the wildfire suppression budget. That's why I ask, what is the true cost of this? it's very possible that you're getting less quality to save and i'm saying less quality of food to the people that you say that you care about and you and there's just this hammering of nutrition and making sure people get fed what they're fed and we already know that the meals are absolutely terrible and i'm not personally attacking the caterers i want to make that clear they're following contract rules And basically, the contract rules are incentivizing them to be cheaper, to cost less, to be less quality, because there's the chance that you'll get ordered more. It continues saying in September 2021, in response to two August 2021 wildfire incidents, Forest Service data shows that the selected mobile food units had to travel over 900 miles to an incident. However, the units selected to respond to those incidents were at the time the closest units to the incidents and were not selected as a result of a lower price compared to other units. So maybe that says you need more food contracts. And finally, it says the Forest Service identified two cases where ordering errors were made under the current iteration of the National Mobile Food Services contracts and both situations were resolved through the request of equitable adjustment. Basically, they paid people out. A Forest Service contracting official attributed the first to human error when the ordering official failed to notify a contractor of a certain requirement where, based on proximity to the fire, it should have been considered for an award. An official determined after the inquiry by the vendor that the contractor would have been the lowest-priced option among those considered and likely would have been selected to respond to the incident. The Forest Service resolved this error through an equitable adjustment for the contractor's lost profit. A Forest Service contracting official attributed the second situation to an incorrect location for a mobile food unit's designated dispatch point. In this situation, one of the mobile food units selected for an order was determined to be six miles outside of the required 75-mile radius of a designated dispatch point after the award was made. The Forest Service settled through another equitable adjustment with the contract holder who was the next in line for the award. So basically, this last paragraph that the Government Accountability Office put together is saying there are times where an ordering officer has said, Hey, just give me that food unit. Let's send it that way. And then a caterer who costs less finds out that they were not chosen. Then they file a complaint, maybe even a lawsuit, because it did say that they settled, saying you didn't pick the cheapest option. I'm the cheapest option, so you need to settle up with me. And then the Forest Service had to pay out the costs of what it would be that that person lost in the contract amount to be on a fire and serving food. So basically they're paying out twice for these incidents when someone finds out, hey, you didn't pick the cheapest person. I'm the cheapest person. How come you didn't pay me? And then in order to figure it out, they're calling it an equitable adjustment, which let's be honest, it's a payoff. It's a payout. I'm sick of these fancy words that we're using to try to describe these things. You paid them off because they complained and said, hey, I'm cheaper than those people, you should have sent me. So that's where we are. These are brand new contracts. So I'd be shocked if these change anytime soon. The last contract lasted four years. We're going into the second year of this contract. And again, it basically says the cheaper you are, the more we're gonna order you and the better business you're gonna have. So it overall incentivizes caterers to dumb down their costs and dumb down their products in order to fit that criteria it's also incentive and it's also incentivizing them because even if they're not picked but they are the cheapest they can then protest and sue and say you should have picked me and then they get paid out anyway this may be (laughs) one of the reasons why food service never seems to like get leaps and bounds better. I know that there are good caterers out there. There's awesome caterers out there. There's caterers out there that will serve you nice restaurant quality food every time they're out at a fire. There's also caterers that suck and serve you really shitty food. Through these new contract awards, the shittier caterer is incentivized to go out more It's an interesting report. I'll put a link to it below. Like I said, it's 70-some pages long where they cover all this stuff, but I took out that chunk because I think it's interesting and important for people to know that this is how food is being ordered for wildfire incidents. On that note, again, thank you to all the paid Substack subscribers. Couldn't do any of this without you. All the social media accounts, all the updates, all the donations, the workouts, my entire archive is for paid subscribers only. So if you want to participate in that, just go to the thehotshotwakeup.substack.com. Click on the subscribe button. It's just $6. And again, if you're one of our 8,000 plus free subscribers, just continue to share and like the articles and podcasts, spread them around, send them to friends and family, turn people onto the Substack and the articles, and that helps out as well. But if you want to participate in those donations, the giveaways, have access to the archives, the Substack-only podcast that comes out midweek, and all of the articles, just go to the hotshotwakeup.substack.com, click on the subscribe button, and it's just $6. On that note, things are getting busier. I think a national PL2 is coming fairly soon. We'll see how the Southwest reacts the next couple of weeks. But remember, reach out to someone you haven't talked to in a while, see how they're doing, get some exercise, stretch, hydrate, get the rest you need because that's super, super important when it comes to recovery. But when you get up, you got to get it done.